There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today in the show, we are discussing 10 books that all aspiring conservationists should read. And joining me is Ed Robertson of the Mountain and Prairie podcast. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. We're here for what I think is going to be our last episode of Conservation Month. And I wanted to wrap this one up with a little bit of, um, hmm, I guess, suggestions for those of you who want to go further. If you've been interested in some of the conversations we've had over the last month, if you've been inspired, if you're just a person who loves deer hunting, and deer, and open spaces, and other wildlife, hunting, fishing, public lands, anything like that. And if you want to try to do some of the stuff we've talked about, and you want to learn more about how you can give back to these animals and places and causes, I want to give you some suggestions for where you can go to learn more, or where you can go to be inspired further, or to dive into these topics even deeper. So we're going to go through a set of book recommendations. This is going to be our little Wired to Hunt book club set of reading resources for those who want to dig into this even more. And the guy joining me is Ed Robertson. He's the host of the Mountain and Prairie podcast, a really, really, really good podcast that I listen to personally, um, exploring all sorts of issues related to the American West and conservation issues of all kinds. Um He's also the conservation director at the Palmer Land Conservancy, and he's the the writer of a terrific newsletter that comes out, I think, every other month full of book recommendations. The reason why I I wanted Ed on this show in particular is that he's one of the only people I know who seems to read as uh, voraciously as I do about these types of things. So I'm always looking forward to his book recommendations. Whenever he mentions a book, I'm always on it. I'm always looking it up. I know it's going to be a good one. So he seemed to be the perfect person to come on here and talk about this kind of stuff. So, you know, what we're going to talk about 
is, of course, book recommendations, but we also do get to some other media suggestions. We talk about some favorite documentaries. We talk about some newsletters we really like, a couple podcasts we like. Um, So if you want to learn more about anything along these lines, we've got ideas for you. But I will say, if you are not a big reader, if you don't buy a lot of books and sit there in your chair at night and read, I would at least, you know, I'm biased here, but I would still suggest you tune into this one because, man, if you're listening to a podcast, you can listen to an audiobook. And audiobooks are often just as just as much fun and just as engaging as listening to a conversation like this. So tune in and try a couple of these through your earbuds. Go on your morning run, go on your drive to work, whatever it might be. And, you know, while I, of course, would hope you still listen to this podcast, add one of these audiobooks to your listening repertoire as well. Uh, because I think, you know, we talk about this later in the show. A book allows you to go deeper into a subject. You can engage it in a just totally different way than you ever could with a podcast conversation like this. You know, we're only ever able to go surface level with these kinds of conversations. A book can take you down many, many, many layers deeper. And I'm I'm a big advocate of that kind of thing. I'm a big advocate of all these books. I'm a big advocate for reading in general and continuing to learn and grow. Um, And of course, I love to do that when it comes to actually deer hunting. But as we've been talking about this last month, there's more to being a deer hunter than just hunting deer. And uh, I think these books will help inspire and inform and educate and empower us all to, to do a little bit of that more. So 10 books, all aspiring conservationists should read with Ed Robertson. That is the conversation we're going to have. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this one. We go back and forth. We bounce back. Each of us had five ideas. We each share our recommendation. Then we kind of discuss why we like it, what the book's about. Many of these books, both of us read. So we kind of riff off of each other and dive into not just the book topics themselves, but also just talk about these issues in general. So this conversation really ends up being more than just a set of like, read this, read this, read this. It really ends up being, hey, I love this book. Here's why. And then let's talk more about this kind of stuff. Um, So I enjoyed it. I think a lot of you will too. I appreciate you tuning in. So let's get to my chat with Ed. All right. With me now on the show is Ed Robertson. Ed, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm uh, I'm really excited for this one, Ed. This is a uh, oh, this is like an intersection of two different circles on a Venn diagram that that maybe wouldn't be as obvious to some folks, but to me, it's a perfect fit. Um, I've been a big fan of yours, a big fan of your work for a number of years now, and I've just been waiting for the right excuse to pull you into my world, and and this seemed to be it. So I'm glad I'm glad we're here. Thanks for making the time. Oh yeah, man. Well, same, you know, right back at you. I've, I've been a huge fan of everything you're doing. And I think it's, you know, you said there are two Venn diagrams, but I think it could possibly be like 10 or 15 different circles <laughs> <laughs> and then we're right there in the middle. But, uh, you know, everything you said, I, I, I say back at you tenfold, you know, I'm just a huge fan of everything you're doing and how you've built your business up and how you, you know, 
you really add a lot of value. I'm not by, by any means, I'm not a hardcore, uh, big game hunter, but I still, you know, get so much value at every, out of everything you do. And, uh, anyway, it's just great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Appreciate it. So let me give you a little context, Ed, and, and some of this, you know, but over the last four or five weeks or so, I've been doing a series here on wired to hunt, kind of exploring a number of different conservation related topics, um, questions, issues, and at different kind of levels of how directly relevant it is to the core audience of Wired Hunt, which is, you know, we're mostly pretty darn hardcore whitetail hunters, but we're also outdoor enthusiasts more generally, hunt other things. We fish, we hike, we camp, we do a lot of different things. So I know that these people listening uh, are like you and I, and that we we generally love the outdoors and want to make sure it's around into the future for us and our kids and grandkids and other people to enjoy. So this this conservation month series has kind of been all over the place. We've talked about things directly tied to white-tailed deer. We've talked about things related to white-tailed deer habitat. We've talked about things like the influence of of some of our forefathers, like Aldo Leopold and and the legacy he left. Um, But one of the topics we really focused on last week was what does conservation look like in, in a regular life? Like mm-hmm. we talk about this idea of like being a conservationist, but what does that mean, you know, on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. Uh, so, so I wanted to talk to you, Ed, because of, because of two things. Number one, from the outside looking in, it sure seems like you are a person who's taken this love of the outdoors and this desire to give back in some way. You have seemed to have found some really great ways to put that into day-to-day practice in your own life. Mm-hmm. But then you've also been someone who seems to be fascinated and curious and interested with the whole suite of ideas and philosophies and adventures that all are related to these topics and and like me read about those things a ton and engage with a lot of media. So yep. So my my mission here today Ed, is twofold. Number one, I want to get a little bit of insight into how you got to where you are and and why you went to where you are. And then the bigger discussion will be kind of having a a two-person book club here, if you're willing, and talk through a number of different book ideas and maybe some other things too, podcasts or films or anything like that, that folks can take a look at if they want to go further in this kind of exploration. If folks want to learn more about conservation or different ideas or different people or different, I don't know, the history or the future of any of these issues, I want to give folks a bunch of options, a menu of what they could turn to next to keep diving into this stuff. And with your podcast, Mountain and Prairie, and your book recommendations that you send out in your newsletter and, and everything you do, um, I, I know that you are similar to me very well read on a lot of these things. Um, so I thought you'd be the perfect guy to talk about this stuff. Are you, are you game for that? Oh yeah, man. I, I just, again, I appreciate you having me on. And, um, I, I was getting ready to say, well, th- that's actually, uh, that's actually a character I play as the conservation guy. And I work for, I uh, actually work for Exxon, but it's been quite a, uh, a, a, a cool story. I mean, it, as far as the, how I, ended up in this conservation world. But I think you and I are very similar in that we're, um, you know, both curious, it could possibly be curious to a fault. Um, just sure. trying to absorb all this, this information across a wide, um, you know, wide spectrum of, of any different kind of media we can find. And so I, um, yeah, I think we will have a lot to talk about. And I think if anything, the challenge is going to be to keep it within, uh, like 
10 hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, give me, give me a little bit of that backstory, Ed. Um, how did you get to this point where so much of your life does revolve around conservation related issues? What was kind of the impetus for that? And how did it go from maybe a, uh, an inkling of an idea to a vocation and career? Yeah, well, I mean, to to go way back, you, people can tell by this accent, I'm not from the West originally. I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, and uh, I always loved the outdoors. You know, I spent, I think, I spent the vast majority of my childhood hanging out in this ditch in my neighborhood, uh, chasing frogs and catching, you know, trying to fish and doing all this just outdoor type stuff. And I think I went to college in North Carolina and. I always wanted to go out west and move out west, but I, I think at age 21, 22, I took myself too seriously just to go out and be a ski bum like I think I probably should have been. And so when I got out of college, um, you and I share a similar um, you know, background in the early days of our careers, and I, I decided, all right, it's time to be a grown-up. I'm going to go get a job at Merrill Lynch, and I'm going to mm-hmm. wear a suit every day, and I'm going to be a serious grown-up. And Biggest so I, mistake of our lives, Ed. <laughs> I know, man. I mean, it's uh, it's funny how how we, we do that, and you know, you're trying to be responsible and trying to follow this well-worn path, and I think, you know, for some people it works, and some people, they love it, but for me, it just didn't click and I couldn't quite figure it out because I'm like, well, I'm doing what I feel like I'm supposed to do, but this is very boring and I don't really feel fulfilled doing it. And I, I eventually got into the commercial real estate business, which is really more the same in North Carolina, wearing a suit, you know, trying to sell warehouses and office buildings and things like that. And I just had this urge. I'm like, I really want to move out West. I want to move out West. And I didn't even really know what that meant. I mean, I'd, I'd had a few trips, like my dad and I rafted the Grand Canyon when I was in high school and I went on a, a like a backpacking camping trip in Colorado, but I just had this urge to be moving West. And so eventually, um, I just made up my mind, all right, I'm going to move to Jackson Hole. And I don't, I don't really care if I have to, if I have to wait tables or, or do whatever. I just, I really want to live out there. But it was during the real estate boom, um, you know, around 2004, 2005, and I found out about this job selling ranches called a ranch broker. And I was like, what? Like, that's a real job? You get to broker the sale of these, and these, you know, these big ranches, like the kind of things like Ted Turner buys. And and so I just kept hassling different companies and uh, sending my resume out. And finally, one of them was like, hey, we're interested in, in talking with you. And so I flew out, flew out to Jackson Hole, had a meeting with them, and they, they ended up hiring me. So I moved to, to Jackson Hole. And at the time, you know, it was awesome. Um, it was, I was in the real estate business doing what I had been doing. I was able to kind of step up my real estate career because I was, um, you know, the, the, everything was just crazy during that time. The 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 real estate market was wild. And um, so I was able to be out West. I, I wasn't married, didn't have a girlfriend. I just had a dog. And so I was traveling all over Montana, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, doing these ranch deals. And this is where it gets kind of funny because a lot of who I was working with were real estate developers. And I had this idea that, well, if they're doing that, if these guys are doing this, I know I could do it. And, you know, I felt like for every dollar I was making, they were making a hundred dollars. And so I, I got in my head, all right, I want to be a real estate developer. I don't know how to do that. So I'm going to go to business school. And so I started applying to different MBA programs, got accepted to one, got a full scholarship, which was kind of a surprise and went back to business school. But I, so I was halfway through the program 
So this would have been, uh, 07, 08, halfway through the program. And two different things happened. One, the whole real estate market collapsed. And I saw that a lot of these so-called developers that I'd been working with out West were not really developers. It was just kind of a, a scam. And a lot of these big plans they had to turn, you know, ranches into these shared communities or whatever just fell apart. And in their, in the wake of their poor business, uh, left kind of a destroyed landscape. And so, you know, this, obsession with the West I'd had forever. I was, I would just, I wanted to live out West. I wanted to play a part in it. I had moved out West and in some ways I'd help facilitate the, um, screwing up of a lot of these landscapes that I hmm. love so much. Yeah. And then I also had a terrible health scare during business school the summer between my first and second year. Um, I went to the doctor one day and they're like, yeah, you got testic testicular cancer. <laughs> and, Thanks. uh, it was a, it was quite a, it was like I had a midlife crisis at age 30. And so the combo of all those things, I ended up being fine with the, with the whole health scare. No big, you know, no big deal in the, in the long run as far as my, my health, but it was a big deal as far as my outlook on things. So the combination of thinking I was going to die there for a little while combined with seeing this destruction that had taken place in this area of the West that I love so much, it just made me really start reevaluating my choices and what I wanted to do. And so I didn't want to be a real estate developer anymore, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did have all these skills in real estate. And so I, when I got out of business school, my wife and I actually lived abroad for a year. And then after that, I got back into the real estate business, but with a conservation focus. And so I worked like, for example, I did a deal with Crested Butte, um, ski resort where they owned some property and we sold it to a land trust. Um, it was conserved in perpetuity and there was some trail access that was put in place in perpetuity. I, I worked with some different counties in Colorado to turn private ranches into open space through acquisition. And I realized kind of over the, the course of doing these deals that I've really, felt a connection to the conservation side of things more than I did to like the deal making fast talking, like selling stuff. I mean, it's a cool, it's a good way to make a living and you can make a lot of money doing it, but I just didn't, I didn't really feel that much of a connection to it. And there's a lot of, um, th th that ranch brokerage business can be very adversarial. So even though we were doing some cool deals that led to conservation outcomes, it was a, it was kind of a rough business. And so, I just, just I, I was on the board of a local, um, a, a regional a land conservation organization, and I got I got a, a pretty big deal done with a, a county open space program up in the mountains here in Colorado. And then I, I went to the executive director. I said, Hey, I don't know if you'd have a need for somebody like me with my background, but if you would, I'd I'd, I'd love to do this full time. And and thankfully, she was able to find a spot for me. So now. For about the last four years, I've been doing full-time land conservation, which is, you know, it's basically real estate, but at the end of the day, it's for what, at least what I consider to be a greater good. So that's kind of the, it was supposed to be short, but long version of my weird <laughs> career trajectory. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't too long. Um, so now you work for a land conservancy, right? Yep. Can you, right. can you describe real briefly just what that actually means? Like what does a group like Palmer do? I mean, I, I know it involves easements and different things like that, but how does conservation and real estate, you know, intersect? You mentioned a couple brief examples there in Crested Butte, but can you just kind of describe that a little more? 
Yeah, Palmer has three main buckets that we work in. One is public open space. So there are a lot of public parks here in the Colorado Springs area that we have conserved. And we use a tool called a conservation easement, which is it's basically a, a, a deed restriction that prevents development on a property. So there are a lot of really beautiful hiking and mountain biking trail areas here in Colorado Springs, and we have protected those in perpetuity. They'll always be open space. We also work with a lot of farmers and ranchers, and that's mostly what I do. One of my big projects is trying to figure out a way to balance the water needs here in the West, which is a, uh, you know, that's a big issue, obviously, and trying to figure out how do we keep irrigated farmland irrigated, but not at the expense of um, cities and municipalities being able to grow because they need water. And so we work with farmers and ranchers really to try to keep their farms and ranches as farms and ranches and not be turned into, uh, you know, housing developments or shopping centers or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we do, you know, we obviously need farms and ranches for a lot of reasons. And then the second, the, the third bucket is just scenic views. You know, the, if, if you drive from here in Colorado Springs up into the mountains, there's this big view of Pikes Peak and we have conserved all the ranches along the highway there. So you'll always have this really, you know, beautiful, big view of Pikes Peak and those ranches will always be open space and they'll never be, you know, track houses or anything like that. Man, it's, it's such important work these days, that kind of thing all across the West with you know, just so many more people wanting to live these places and so many yep. ranchers or farmers aging out and trying to figure out what to do with their land once they don't want to work it anymore and kids not wanting to carry on the family work. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure you deal with this all the time, but just locally around like the places that I've spent the last decade when I go out west in Idaho and Wyoming and stuff, just seeing more and more houses and developments popping up. It's just it's scary. You know, thinking about what it might look like in 10 or 20 or 30 years if there aren't more things done like what you're describing. So, Oh, yeah, it really is. And and I think as more people want to move out here, and, you know, I'm one of them, North Carolina, and, and I yeah. moved out here. And Ditto. But the, as the, the property values increase, as these, you know, as the generations, um, you know, as, it, as the properties move through generations, when somebody dies – the, uh, you know, the, it's a big deal for some of these farmers and ranchers to be able to pay the estate taxes as the real estate value um, increases. And so that's where these conservation easements, they're a tool that can allow, that can generate some income and can reduce the property value so that that's not as much of an issue. Because, you know, some of these farmers and ranchers, they don't have any choice other than to start selling off their land because the 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 value is so high now. So it's, um you know, it's a, it's a challenge and it's tough, but it's, it's fun to be working on and it's fun to spend, you know, I'm, I'm 44. So I've been working for quite a long time now and to be able to, um, you know, kind of apply all these skills I've learned over the years to something that matters to me. Um, and I think matters to a lot of people. I think it's, it's a real, it's a real honor to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so how about this other half of your life though? You host the mountain and prairie podcast and you, you know, do this. You've got this terrific reading list that you send out every month with book recommendations, and it, it seems like you've you've filled up any other gaps in your life with, you know, learning more about conservation and wild places and these things you care about, and discussing these ideas with other people that also care about them. Um, do you think there's as okay? As a person who wants to, let's let's just say, as a, as an individual who says, you know what, I care about these places, whether it's you know, an open farm in Michigan or the national forest in Colorado, I care about 
wild places. I care about wild animals. I want to do something. I want to be some kind of positive. Um, I want to have some kind of positive difference. So like, let's, let's just say like, that is a feeling that one of us has. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there actual value, like intrinsic value, or is it in some way a good thing to read about this kind of stuff, learn about this kind of stuff, dive into a library of books related to conservation or listen to podcasts like yours who talk with folks who do this kind of stuff. Is that valuable to the cause or is this just entertainment? How do you look at like all the hours you spend at night, probably sitting in your chair or your bed, reading these books and learning about this stuff. Is that just entertainment for you? Or do you think that that actually serves a greater good in some kind of way? Yeah. You know, I've always said that I, and, and one of the books actually that I was going to recommend is by a guy named David Gester. And he talks about, um, he talks about how in order to want to protect something, you have to love it. And, it, or, and in order to, to buy into some cause and to, to make it be, you know, rise to the top of your priority list, you need to love it. And so I feel like whether it's going out for a hike or a run or going on a hunting trip or, you know, spending time outside with my girls or reading these books, you know, I, I read a, a wide variety of books, but when it comes to the West and conservation, like, yeah, it's entertainment. Yeah, I enjoy it. But it, if anything, it just kind of fuels this love of the place and of open space and of wild places that causes me to want to devote more and more time to it. And so, you know, when I was working at Merrill Lynch, I was reading all these books about the West, whether it's like, you know, adventures of mountain climbers or people on these river trips or Thing, you know, dreaming about fishing on Flat Creek and Jackson Hole, or whatever, and and that tough place, kind of a yeah, that kind of obsession um, is eventually led me to where I am, which is where I'm doing it full time. And I don't think I don't think if anybody wants to make a difference, whether that's you know devoting their career to it or even just donating fifty bucks to a local land trust, no matter what, you got to be you got to be kind of obsessed with it or buy into it. And, 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 and it's got to be important to you. So it, I can't speak for, for anybody other than myself, but for me, this endless reading and, and just curiosity about all this stuff, it, that is yes, entertainment. Cause I enjoy it, but it just fuels the work. I mean, I, I think all the stuff you do with, you know, with the you know, back 40 and, and your podcast and everything on meat eater like that, that is fueling people who are sitting at home and maybe they're in, you know, a job that they, they need to pay the bills, but it's not necessarily the best thing in the world. But I would guarantee that there've been a lot of people who have sent their money to like backcountry hunters and anglers because of watching you and your colleagues at meat eater. Yeah. And so I think it's kind of both really, it's both entertainment and fuel to make you to, to, make you fall in love with something, make you care about something. So you'll devote your resources towards it. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. I think it, it falls very much in line with, with, with my view, I guess, too. I feel like I, if I were to sit and I have this debate myself often, not terribly often, but every once in a while I'll watch, I don't know, we'll watch a couple episodes of some comedy series or something and I get done with it and I kind of feel like I just ate junk food. Like I just yes. ate a meal at McDonald's. Yep. But if I were to sit down and read a book or something, I always, 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 even if it's mostly for entertainment, I always feel like I did something more valuable. Like I ate my vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly if it's a book about wild places or conservation or history of these things or something like that, it just, it like fills up. You said fuel, it kind of fuels you. I feel like it fills my reservoir. It yes. like fills my gas tank, both with sometimes it's just actual 
tactical knowledge, like how do you make a difference? Like how do I do something that's going to keep this chunk of land wild? Or sometimes it's teaching me how to keep hope or how to get pissed off or it inspires me or it shows me that, oh, wow, these people did this a hundred years ago. You still, mm-hmm. you can do it too, or, or your generation can do it too. Or sometimes it changes my mind on things and makes me look at stuff in a different way. Sometimes it further uh, solidifies my passion for something. Sometimes it points me in a brand new direction that I need to learn a whole bunch more about so that I can start working on the right things. Um, I just feel like, and I'm obviously biased, but I do feel like if, if, if I want to say that I care about these things and want to do something about it, I have to constantly be engaging with it and learning about it to make sure that my tank's full and that my compass is pointing in the right direction. I think that, and, you know, and then also still like have that, you talked about it, have that like love and passion for it. And this is a way to engage that thing too. Um, so I think that's why I keep on buying these things and staying up late at night reading them. <laughs> no, I agree. And I, and I also think, you know, in school, and you know, I've had this, I've had the fortune of having this fabulous education, probably too much education, but the, 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 the reality is in school, like when you're learning history, you're reading these, you know, quote history books. And it's just this like laundry list of one thing after another. But what, what I found as a, as a, I found, I, I realized it probably midway through college when, and, and I've, you know, kind of gone crazy with it as a, as an adult, but there are all these books out there that are really, really, really fun to read. It's not like just boring history. And it, cause I didn't really like history when I was in school in high school or college, but when you can have access to books. And I mean, I think yours is a perfect example of, of a book that's kind of like a, a personal journey, you know, some adventure, but by, by reading this book about this guy who's out exploring all this public land, you, you kind of sneak in all this, this very specific knowledge about the history of public lands and issues facing public lands. And so I think for, for people who may not be like big readers now or may not, or may think reading's boring or whatever. I mean, I, in some ways I've been there and I know that, but I think what the, if you, if you find the right books and they don't have to be hardcore, just straight up academic history books, they can be a biography about somebody, you know, or like, like, Hampton Sides, for example, I think he's the master. He wrote the Blood and Thunder, which is basically a biography yeah. of Kit Carson. And but by reading this crazy story about Kit Carson, you also learn the history of the American Southwest. And and so I just think you know, for people who read a lot, this is all you know, it's nothing new. But I think if if you just one of these people, and I get it, who's like ah. I'd rather watch TV or read. You just, you're probably reading the wrong books. And so go for these awesome books. I know, I know you've got some really good ones to recommend here, but I think yours is a great place to start for this kind of stuff. So anybody, I'm Mark's uh, pro bono publicist, read that book immediately. (laughs) That wild (laughs) country, an epic journey into the past, present, and future of America's public lands. (laughs) (laughs) Available at all bookstores. Buy five copies. Give it to all your friends. I do appreciate the kind words, Ed. Um, But you're right. Um, about the, about the other stuff. Um, I, I do think, you know, one thing that I think is helping a lot of folks these days who maybe weren't historically readers engage more with books, which is a cool thing is, is how accessible and convenient audiobooks are now. Yes. You know, definitely. so, so we're about to get into a bunch of book recommendations. Uh, if you're not a person who likes to sit down with a physical book, but you're listening to a podcast right now, well, 
this is just like a podcast, this, these books. You know, grab a subscription to Audible or go to Libby and get these for free. Some of these you can get on like that. This is Libby is like a like a digital library for audiobooks. Um, and listen to some of these. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's a great way to fill your time while taking a run or driving to work or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of ways to get this kind of stuff. But I do think that books have have a unique way of diving deep into something and really like taking you on a journey that very few other media forms can. Um, like podcasts are great, but I don't think I can do here on my podcast anything like what somebody can do in a book. Uh, same thing for a, like a magazine article or a, you know, a TV episode or something like that. You just can't do the same thing as a book can, in my opinion, which is, which is why I think they're so powerful. Oh yeah, so. I completely agree. So that said, I guess Ed, should we should we get into these book recommendations? Um, oh yeah, you've got some good ones. I've got some good ones. The idea here is I want to give folks a set of ten, maybe more, by the time we <laughs> dive into some of these and kind of related books, but a bunch of different ideas of books they can pick up and listen to or read if they want to learn more about any number of different issues related to conservation. So. I I've got five recommendations and I think you've got five recommendations. Um, yep. let's just, let's run through this list and talk about them a little bit. All right. Who want you want to go first? How about you, Ed? You're, you're the guest. What's your All first right. one on the list? Well, anybody who listens to my stuff or has seen my reading list, they know that I've got possibly a weird obsession with Theodore Roosevelt, really everything about the guy, like obviously from a conservation standpoint, but I always talk about Theodore Roosevelt, his operating system of just going as hard as you can every day, you know, being being very, very focused and doing purpose driven work and living what he called the strenuous life, Mm -hmm. just working, working very, very hard towards a, a purpose that means something to you. And so I could recommend Theodore Roosevelt books all day long. But when it comes to conservation, I feel like one of the best books out there. And it's, it's of all the ones I'm going to recommend, this is probably the, the, the toughest read, yeah. um, is the wilderness warrior, Theodore Roosevelt and the crusade for America by Douglas Brinkley. And I know this is an important book to you mm-hmm. and you reference it in your book a lot. Um, but it, it is probably, I mean, it's close to 800 pages at least, and it is thick and it basically goes through every part of Theodore Roosevelt's conservation legacy from his time as a child and how he became so obsessed with the outdoors all the way through his presidency. And, you know, when I know a lot of folks who listen to your podcast are public land advocates, and I feel like if you're gonna, you know, gonna be involved in the public lands world and public lands advocacy these days, which is is more important now than ever, you really need to understand this time period when Theodore Roosevelt was was around, um, and when because a lot of the work that he and his colleagues did set the stage for where we are now. And to understand kind of the, the challenges facing public lands, it really helps to kind of understand the foundation of it. But I mean, everything from the Boone and Crockett to the Lacey Act to the Antiquities Act, all that stuff is is based. Um, you know, during on Theodore Roosevelt's time, both before he was president and when he was president. And then one of the things I always look for in books and is 
I like to read a book that makes me want to go out and read like 10 more books yeah. on the same subject. Yeah. And this is probably the ultimate example of that. Cause like he talks, I remember I read this probably, I mean, it was probably 10 years ago when I read this, but he talks about Gifford, uh, Pinchot. Yep. And I thought, man, that guy seems like an interesting dude. And that's, uh, I, I, at, when I first read this, I'd never even heard of him. And then it's kind of led me down a rabbit hole of reading different books like the big burn, for example. And, um, and so, this is it is a tough it's a tough read um, just because there's just a lot of info in it, but I, I, it's not like you need to read every single word and, and absorb every single word. But I think if you can just kind of crank through it, it will expose it at least expose me to all these new ideas and new people and kind of during this very formative time of conservation in the United States. And so. It's a it's a wonderful book. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, um, since <laughs> you you used it when writing an actual book. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree with you. Basically, everything you just said is is exactly what I think about it. Um, it is, it is a like you said, it's a big, uh, comprehensive book. So it's not light, easy beach reading. <laughs> it's no, not it's, at all. It's a book that you read like if you want to get a PhD in this stuff, like. If if you read that Wild Country, if you read my book and you enjoyed that and you left that thinking, man, I really want to get more into the details of this history and more into Teddy, like that's the first one to jump to. If you're willing yeah. to like, if you really want to dig in, if you want to come out of this and like be a, you know, a a an expert of sorts, like within you know just regular life type of people, and you want to really get it, you can't find a better resource than that one. Um, but what's particularly interesting about this for hunters is that it's, it's not just, you know, a heady history of politics and conservation. There's also some fun stuff in there about Roosevelt's early years as a hunter and rancher and cowboy and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you get a little bit of that adventure side of things. And really, I mean, it's the dude's fascinating and, and his, his impact is so far ranging. It wasn't like he was just making a big difference when he was president, which is what he gets a lot of the, you know, the uh, rightfully so the publicity today for what he did as president, but also as the governor of New York, also mm -hmm. as one of the co-founders of the Boone and Crockett club also as, you know, just what he was doing in those early years. I mean, he, uh, he really had his fingerprints on things for a very, very long period of time that, you know, as, as hunters or anglers or hikers or anything today, if you do something outside, you are, you're enjoying something that Roosevelt had his, 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 his thumbprint on. Oh yeah, uh, definitely. And I think, you know, if somebody wants to, I get all these questions cause I'm so obsessed with TR publicly <laughs> and I, people are like, well, what's the one book I should read? Like yeah. if you want to read one book on him, my favorite book ever is called the rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edward, uh, Edmund Morris. But mm -hmm. there's another one called the river of doubt that just focuses on his, uh, expedition he did in Brazil after yeah. he was president. And those are good entry points just to the man. Um, but if you want to go deep, I don't know of a better book than this one. Yeah. Now I'll, I'll give like a complimentary recommendation off this one. It's not on my list, but if you, if you are willing to dive deep into that one and you're interested in that, uh, Brinkley wrote another book that kind of acts as a sequel to this one mm -hmm. and it's called rightful. Is it rightful heritage? Uh, let me, rightful heritage and that story that book is is just like this theodore roosevelt book but it's with franklin delano roosevelt so it's about oh, his yeah. cousin and it covers 
the same type of things. It covers basically the conservation history of this time period from basically where Theodore Roosevelt leaves off all the way toward till the end of uh, Franklin Roosevelt's life and really going extending a little past that even talking through everything from what went on during the Dust Bowl and the Depression and you know the conservation uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, all sorts of things related to actually Aldo Leopold's involvement in some programs in the 30s and 40s. Um, I mean, there was those two that family, the Roosevelt family, between the two of them, they really had a an enormous influence on public lands and conservation and, and early environmental protections uh, here in America. So, if you really want to dive deep, that would be the next one to kind of keep it, get you down the road a few more decades. Um, both of those were super helpful as I was exploring the history of these things. Um, and, and I read somewhere that Brinkley was actually working on another one, which covers like the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't seen news of that in years. So I don't know if that one got, if that one fell off his radar or if it got lost with other product projects he's working on, but He's a he's a great writer and historian. I hope that that one comes out because because I've really enjoyed his stuff. If you like to get deep into it, he does it about as good as anyone. Oh yeah, he's great. Uh, I, I when I when I see books like this, I just I, I wonder just from a very practical standpoint how they go about writing something like that because it's just, it's just an amazing piece of work and there's so much info. I I don't even like him or Doris Kearns Goodwin people like that. It, mm-hmm. It's just. It's really amazing that they're able to compile that much info in a readable form. So yeah, those are great. No easy task. Great, great recommendation there. I second it. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in 
ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. All right. Can I give one? Go for it. Okay, so I I kind of... I kind of looked at my set of recommendations almost as um, they they kind of fall in a chronological timeline of sorts. So, so my recommendations start by looking back and they end by looking forward. And so my first recommendation is a book called American Serengeti by Dan Flores. And I've talked about this book in the past. My buddy and colleague, Steve Rinella has had him on his podcast and talked about it. So, Probably people have heard of this one, um, but if you haven't, I can't recommend it enough. And I recommend this as a book that you should read if you want to, you know, live out a life focused on conservation. Because this book documents documents a series of real mistakes that I think our predecessors made in the decades preceding us. Uh, It talks about the Great Plains. It talks about how the American Plains were some of the most wildlife rich and vibrant landscapes in the entire world on par with with like the African Serengeti. Um, Just incredible. Both during the Pleistocene, you know, 15,000 years ago when there were saber-toothed tigers and short-faced bears and all those kinds of critters running around. But then also more recently, you know, 300, 200 years ago, prior to uh, Lewis and Clark, and then the preceding um, March West by Europeans. Um, there were just these unbelievable herds of buffalo and pronghorns and and packs of wolves and grizzly bears, and just the wildlife was was unbelievable. And so this book takes a look at that history, and it uses a handful of specific species to kind of illustrate you know what this looked like. So we get to dive deep into the story of pronghorn. Coyotes, wild horses, which interestingly evolved first here in North America and then disappeared. And then were also later, uh, they'd crossed Beringia and went over to uh, Asia. And then that's where they ended up being domesticated and brought back here. Um, So wild horses, grizzlies, buffalo, wolves. So we, we take a look at those six species or seven species and dive deep into their stories like, what these critters were doing 300, 400 years ago, and then what happened when, uh, you know, Americans moved west and proceeded to basically decimate the populations of all these animals and many others. And then we, we dive a little bit into, within each chapter, how each of those, to varying degrees, has recovered. And I think it's it's just this very interesting look. It's it's both fascinating because I I love reading about what these places were like and what these what these wildlife populations were like. Like I can't help but read something like this and then when I'm driving out west and going over the plains in North Dakota, I can't help but come over a hill and think in my mind, man, what would it have looked like with a million strong buffalo streaming mm-hmm. across this grassy valley or something like that. So so I I read it and part of me is just like a kid imagining this amazing thing. And then the flip side, when you get into just the, this, the destruction that we wrought on these 
places too. It's, it's, it's then very sobering. So I think it's, it's useful to remind us what's possible, both the good and the bad, right? It's, it's possible. Like this is what this landscape could support. And then this is what the worst inclinations, the, the, the dark side of kind of human nature can also lead to over exploitation, right? So many stories of over exploitation. Um, and then again, the good, which is to different degrees, we kind of righted the ship. We figured out, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't just take, 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 kill, 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 kill. We have to moderate. We have to protect and conserve. And because of that, we do have great populations of pronghorn. And we have recovered grizzly bears to a degree and wolves to a degree and you know buffalo to a smaller degree. Um, and, and so it's, it's both sobering and inspiring to me when I read this book. Um, and it's it's one of those books where it's talking about history and kind of biology and conservation history and all those kinds of things, which could be kind of deep text, kind of text heavy, tough reading. Um, but this is actually a very easy reading book. Uh, Dan does a great job of of really telling these stories in a way that um, kind of pulls you into the landscape and and makes it um, not. Like a not as easy reading as like a fiction book, but but one of the easier reading books that where you're going to learn a lot about history and about wildlife. It's just it's just a fun and interesting book that I think really can inform what got us to this point. Um, I don't know. Have you read that one? Yeah, I have, and I I love it. I mean, I think th- that book and then his other book, Coyote America. <laughs> he's I actually had Dan on my podcast a long time ago. I didn't even know him. I just, I've, I've gotten to know him since, um, but I've kind of cold reached out. And I remember my mom listened to that episode. Uh, we were talking about coyotes and we talked a, a, a bit about like wild horses and that kind of thing. My mom said something like, you know, I don't, I don't care one single bit about coyotes. I've never thought anything about coyotes, but I couldn't stop listening to, to him talk about it because it was so interesting. And I think yeah. he writes just as he speaks. And I think, you don't have to have a connection with any of those animals to just be drawn in and completely fascinated by the stories of the animals and then the stories of human inter- interaction. But I'm with you, and I hadn't really thought about it till you said it. But I think if anything, the, the books are are very interesting from a historical perspective. But they, um, they if it, they're kind of like a, a, a advertisement or something for for um, game management and wildlife management and what how humans can you know, for better or worse, humans are here. We're here to stay. We, you know, p- humans have, have always been here since we came across the Bering Strait, but, um, and we're part of the ecosystem, but we can with, with, uh, with thoughtfulness and with effort, we can manage things so that these wildlife still can thrive, you know, in spite of all the development and, and the, the human, um, interactions. And so I, I can't recommend that book enough. I, yeah. I love it. Yeah. And, and I think as, you know, especially for, for myself and other hunters listening, like it is, it is exceptionally important to understand the history of hunting in America. And like, we have this dark past that we have to, we have to recognize, we have to acknowledge, and we have to think and keep that in mind as we look at what we do today and making sure that we don't ever fall prey to the same, uh, I don't want to say instincts, but the same, the same temptations, I think that, that drove a a lot of what happened in the 1800s, 
mm-hmm. can still pop into day-to-day life today. It, it wasn't like, a, not all, but many of these folks that were part of this back in the 1830s, 40s, 60s, 70s, whatever, it wasn't like they were, um, you know, um, malevolent. It, it wasn't like they were going out there trying to extirpate species. It wasn't like they were going out there thinking that they were destroying um Buffalo populations. A lot of these folks were out there just trying to get theirs. They're just yep. try, like, I just want to go out there, have a good time, or I just want to go out there and feed my family, or I'm just going to go out there and try to make pay the bills. Right? They were all just doing their thing, which is kind of what most of us are still doing today. We're all just trying to go out and have a good time, or get ours, or fill our freezer today. But none of these folks were able to zoom out enough to see what was going on at the next level up, the bigger picture implications of millions of people all trying to do that. And so today we're fortunate that there are, like you said, there's game management practice at the state level and, and nationally there's different things. And, and we have, we have restrictions and regulations and we have a, a North American model of conservation that has helped inform how we can do this, but it, it also has to play out on the individual level. So I think, you know, having that historical foundation is, is just this little thing that's in the back of our minds, I think is, is a, is a useful and an important, an important kind of insight to have as, as a modern day hunter. Um, and I think this book does a good job of, of providing that in a way that's still enjoyable to read. So it's, uh, it's right up there at the top of my list. Yeah. I, I keep, I keep that book like on my desk. I have a bunch of them stacked up in front of like in front of my computer when I'm working. And it's one that I keep set up and I look at it all the time just because it's a very important book. And it's just, uh, it was very eye opening to me. I mean, I learned stuff that now it's second nature and it's, it's just important facts that, that I consider just kind of standard facts. But at the t- when I read it, I, d- I had no idea about it, like about horses, yeah. how they disappeared and then came back. I mean, it's yeah, so interesting. Very, yeah. Highly, highly recommend. Yeah. I'm going to throw two bonus kind of supplementary recommendations on that one. If, if anyone's read that book already and enjoyed it, or if you read it and then you're like, I still want more on this, you got to read American Buffalo by my pal, Steve, Steve Rinella. Amazing, amazing book, really fun read. You learn specifically about the history of Buffalo um, and you go on this great adventure with him. It's one of my favorite books of all time. That's a great one. And then another one called The Last Stand um, by Michael Punke or Punke. I can't remember how you say his last name, but that is about the history of Buffalo as well. But um, with a more specific focus on the impact that George Bird Grinnell had, who's another one of those guys who sits on the conservation kind of Mount Rushmore there with Theodore Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot, um, George Bird Grinnell was one of the first editors of Field and Stream, uh, did a did a ton. And so you get to learn about his story and his conservation impacts. And, and that's really right within this same um, family of books. So those are two others that are great. Yeah, I was I was thinking that exact same thing. Um, I was flipping through it as you were talking and looking at the Buffalo chapter and Steve's book and uh, I guess Punky, I guess that's how you say it. But I read both of those books. I remember, I remember, I got them both from the library in Boulder when I used to live there. And um, uh, again, just just eye opening and and easy and fun to read. So yeah, we're on the same page there. All right. So what's your next one? I got another one that's kind of kind of related to American Serengeti. It's called Losing Eden: An Environmental History of the American West by mm. Sarah Dant, Doctor Sarah Dant, who is a history professor at Weber State. I think it's, is it Weber or Weber State? I think it might be Weber, but I, I, I think don't, it's I really Weber. Don't I think it's, yeah, it's like the opposite of what I think it should be. Weber State. And, and Sarah 
is married to Dan Flores. And, <laughs> Not interesting. Uh, which is small. I mean, that's a, that's a power couple if there really is. was one. Yeah. But um, I, I met Sarah at a event that I went to a few years back, some a conference about the West. And she's just, she's super fun and, and obviously just sharp as a whip. And um, she, I got a copy of her book there and I read it. And it's really just, a, it's relatively short. I mean, I think it's less than 200 pages, but it's just this broad overview of the history of the American West from kind of an environmental slash conservation perspective. So it starts out, talking about the natural history, a lot of the same things that are covered in American Serengeti and about Native Americans, um, you know, before European settlement. And one of the, the, the title that losing Eden, one of the, the themes that she's trying to get through, you know, over the course of the book is that, um, there's this myth that when, white people showed up and started, you know, quote, settling the, the West, that they were going into this Eden, the Garden of Eden, and it was untouched in this beautiful, unspoiled wilderness. But what she dip, lays out in a lot of different ways is that ever since humans have been in North America, it, it's never been a straight up Eden. I mean, yeah. there, there have always been hunting grounds and there's always been different forms of agriculture. And, and while, you know, obviously it was, it was a lot closer to an Eden 10,000 years ago than it is, is today. She, um, she really is trying to bust this myth of, of Eden, but, uh, you know, over the course of 200 pages, she, she lays out, um, you, you know, the, the native American, um, how they, you know, how they hunted and how they made the West a place where they could live, even though they were, the, the resources and the, the natural resources were, were slim, you know, water and, and all that kind of stuff. And then she talks about, there, there's a big portion of the book where she talks about um, the Mormons and how they played a really big role in the settlement of the West and how they introduced um, a lot of uh, irrigation on large scale and how they were able to kind of really stretch particularly water resources very thin to to um you know to to allow for a, a lot of people to thrive in a region where that's pretty harsh region and then she there's one chapter where she talks about the difference between preservation and conservation you know conservationist versus preservationist and mm-hmm. Theodore Roosevelt was the kind of the the definition of a conservationist whereas yeah he wanted to use all the natural resources we had in North America, um, in the most effective way possible. So Theodore Roosevelt was not necessarily, Hey, let's look at that big forested hillside over there. Let's keep it a forested hillside forever. He was more in the the mindset of, all right, there's a lot of timber over there that can help fuel the United States. And so let, let's consider this a renewable resource that we need to take care of. But you know, there's nothing wrong with cutting those trees down and then growing them back. Whereas John Muir was more along the lines of let's preserve this how it is. Don't touch it, leave it completely as it is. And she doesn't really take a side one way or the other about which one's right, but really lays out both sides of the argument, which I really appreciated. And then she goes through a lot of the kind of booms and busts that make, that have made up the history of the American West, whether that is the fur trappers in the very, very early days. And this goes to a lot of things you were talking about in, um, in American Serengeti, you know, the fur trappers came out and basically eradicated all all the beaver, all the different furs. And it, it, this has been the history of the West for about as long as white people have been around. We come in, extract resources, until they're gone and then leave. And so you could think about fur, mining, forestry. Now energy is a big part of that. And she she just kind of digs into all the different 
um, time periods and the different different things that have happened as as we people have have tried to kind of extract um, value from the landscape of the West, and then as we've kind of learned our lesson and had to <laughs> had to to balance things out a bit. And then she talks similar to like in your book, she, she mentions a few of these names of historic people that I'd heard forever, but I'd never really, um, known the details, but one that stuck out in my mind was she talks about Frank church and he was a Senator Mm, and there's the Frank church wilderness, I believe in Idaho. She talks about him and everything he did as far as the wilderness act, the wild and scenic rivers act, and um, and then she kind of finishes up in modern day with a lot of the clashes between industry and like the Endangered Species Act. And so, again, less than 200 pages, but really, really sets the gives you a good framework to go out and read different, you know, dig in a lot deeper. And it's kind of the perfect book, as I mentioned, of allowing you to giving you this menu of really, really interesting things at, at kind of a high level. And then you can go dig in as needed. And she has um, suggested reading or further reading in every single chapter. So she even does that part of the work for you. Um, but really a great book and fits in well with your recommendation. Yeah. You know, I, I own that book, but I actually have not read it. I hate to admit, um, but I was I was gifted it like right after I finished writing mine. Oh, really? And I okay. remember thinking that I was just kind of burnt out on the history yeah. of this stuff. I was like, ah, it's probably all the same stuff I already just researched and wrote about. So I'd never ended up picking it back up again. And it's just sitting at the, like in the bottom corner. And as you're describing this to me, you're, you're making me realize what a mistake I made because there's a number of things you mentioned in there that are, are different than stuff I covered or that dive into different avenues that I wish I had. Um, so, so I got to pick that up and dive into it. And and something you mentioned there that sounds like she led her book with is uh, is the history of of the Native American perspective and and uh, impact that they had on the land and how they were able to live with the land and the the ways that they worked the land and and this idea that you know the myth I think that so long has been thought like you you said it right we they. You read about Lewis and Clark coming across this untouched wilderness when actually there had been millions of people, millions of people living there for thousands of years. Yep. Um, and we just kind of conveniently forget about that. Um, one of the greatest regrets I have with my book is that I didn't talk about that at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that I just it, it, it wasn't it wasn't on purpose. It was, it was more so like, I didn't even, I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't know how to dive into that appropriately. Um, and, and because of that, I think it just seemed like that just seemed like a totally other book for someone else. And I thought I could only bite off so much. Um, but in retrospect, I wish I had tried to at least, uh, at least cover it in some kind of way, because I think unfortunately it's, it's this big glaring, black hole in the beginning of my book that I ignored completely and, and I wish I hadn't. So I'm glad that, that, you know, this is something that's being talked about more often and it sounds like this book is a good place to, to dig into that a little bit. So I'm, I'm definitely going to check that out myself. Yeah, it's definitely worth the read. And it's not a, you know, it's not a huge time investment. It's not like 
wilderness warrior where you gotta you gotta really clear the calendar to to tackle that. I mean, it's it's and for uh you know for somebody who specializes in academic writing, it's not at all an academic type book. I mean, I, I think it could be used as a textbook, but it, I enjoyed reading it, and uh, I actually had Sarah on the podcast to talk about it, and so she's just very charismatic, very funny, um, very very wise when it comes to all these topics. So I, yeah, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna put that back at the top of my list. Okay, next one for me. So if if my first recommendation was looking way back at um, some of our historical crimes, I guess to uh, to the natural world here in America, my next book is a little further down that timeline to one of our awakenings, one of our kind of ecological awakenings. Uh, to how we might do things better. And this book is a book I've talked about a million times in the podcast and just recently, like two or three weeks ago, talked about in the podcast. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time because people have heard about it plenty of times before, but I, I couldn't have a podcast called The 10 Books That All Aspiring Conservationists Should Read and not mention A Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. Yep. Um, I look at this as like a foundational text, like Anyone who who wants to do anything related to conservation or the natural world or or anything along those lines just like has to read this. It's, it just seems like required reading. Um, it's this text that really I think helps. You know, it, it's kind of a three part book of sorts. The first part of the book is just a beautiful series of essays about Leopold's experiences in nature, working this little farm he had in Wisconsin, watching wildlife. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of easy, fun reading. It, it's, it's great to sit on the porch and kind of, you know, just kind of soak in these, these great ideas and thoughts and experiences that Eldo's able to put on the page. Um, I do think that through these short, simple essays, he does like illuminate some interesting ideas in like a, a very powerful way, but you know, it's, it's easy reading. Um, and it's all kind of that Midwestern Wisconsin focused. It's, it kind of walks through month by month, these different vignettes across a year on his little sand farm there. So, so interesting. And then the next series of essays follows him on some of his travels across the continent, stuff that he experienced as a young man down in Arizona or New Mexico, working for the U S forest service, things he did later in life. Um, some really famous foundational essays like, um, thinking like a mountain in which, um, he really, really powerfully writes about the, the challenges that we have had as people living and coexisting or trying to coexist with predators. Um, I think it's very poignant and, and a really important read for hunters. Um, that one in particular. Um, but again, it's, it's mostly stories about these experiences, but then you get to the third part. I think he calls this part like the upshot and, and this part of the book is where he really, this is like, it's like a different thing. The second, this third part of the book is like a different book almost in which he kind of said, okay, you read about these stories and experiences that kind of shaped who I am and, and why I care about things. Well, here's now how I make sense of what all that means to us moving forward. Um, and he, he has a series of, I guess essays or chapters or something would be how you describe it, where he, he dives into ideas around protecting wilderness and hunting and um, outdoor recreation and how that impacts wild places and wild animals. And then finally diving into this whole idea of, of a land ethic, 
which I think is this this idea that has really defined a lot of what modern conservation is and in, in, in how we think about things today. Um, and so I think better than probably anyone before, he helps put words to a lot of ideas that many of us have felt or considered and helps kind of um, focus a lot of these emotions maybe we have too. So I won't I won't rant anymore about a San County Almanac because I've done that plenty. <laughs> but uh, but I had to mention it. I don't know. Would you add anything on that one? Is is there anything that I missed there? I mean, you you've read it, right? Yeah, and and I think it it's one of those books. It's it's like when when I had kids and and you hear people they say all these things like oh they grow up so fast all these cliches. I'm like, well, those things are cliches for a reason because they're 100 percent true. And I feel like San County Almanac. It comes up so often and on my podcast, you know, I have such a wide variety of guests, but I mean, just off the top of my head, there have been like some ultra professional athlete ultra runners that mention it as one of the most important books they've ever been. There's a guy who was a lawyer in Chicago and read that book and quit his job and, and started a bison ranch in Montana because of that book. Um, you know, I've heard your buddy, Steve Rinella talk about it. I've, I've, you know, I've got some art, these, you know, world famous Western artists, they talk about it. And so it's one of these things where everybody's talking about because it is that important and because it's, it, it really is. Um, I think he took all these ideas that are floating around in people's heads and that people kind of knew these universal truths or truths about the land and, and anybody who has spent time, you know, connected to the land in one way or another understands this stuff at a, at a real base level. And he was able to put words to it. And so, um, I mean, there's nothing I can add to, to the, all the great stuff that's been said about it other than if you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's not hard reading. You no. can you can crank through it. I've got like three copies of it in my in my little shed out back. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. I, I was at the Eldo Leopold Foundation a couple of weeks ago, and I saw all these different, you know, editions of the book and different covers and things like that from over the years. And I had this this urge is like, man, I got to buy some of these other editions. I, I really like that cover, this one. And then I thought that's kind of ridiculous to buy multiple copies, but at the same time, like, no, it's not. It's it, yeah, it's not. <laughs> so that's on my to-do list. You, like, is, I don't know who's listening, but like, I can tell you that's 100% normal. Buy, yep. buy like 10 of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it. Um, so yeah, that, that's my next one. What's, what's your next? Um, so my next one is, it's called Down River into the Future of Water in the West by Heather Hansman, who she is a journalist, writer. She writes a lot for Outside Magazine. And so in my daily work at Palmer Land Conservancy, most of what I do is working with water. And it's funny because I'm from East North Carolina where, if anything, there's too much water. You know, every time a hurricane comes through, the whole town floods. Right. And, and so and then out here, there's there's none. But one of the challenges that I've found with water, even for somebody like me who – that's my job – is it is unbelievably boring talking about water rights and, you know, the doctrine of prior appropriation and all this kind of stuff. And water rights attorneys make tons of money – because it is just such a complex and confusing subject that really it, it kind of makes sense, but it kind of doesn't. There's a lot of gray area in there. And so there's this one book called Cadillac Desert, which a lot of people refer to as like the Bible of water in the West. And then there's Beyond the Hundred Meridian by Waz Stegner, which is another great book that will help you kind of understand water. But if you want to get a good overview of water, without having to invest, you know, months of, of your life into to reading all this really detailed stuff, 
Downriver is the book. And it's in a lot of ways, it reminds me of your book, Mark, because she it's this adventure she has. So she, this Heather starts at the base of the Wind River mountain range at the headwaters of the Green River and floats down mostly solo by herself, floats the whole length of the Green River down to where it, the confluence with the Colorado River in Utah. And so that story is kind of the structure of the book. And along the way, she examines all the different issues or challenges facing water in the West. And she gives you this education. And it's kind of a perfect <laughs> book for somebody like me who doesn't want to read like hardcore, just straight up history, but wants to learn. And she sneaks in all this really, really interesting info. And, and so, you know, she, she kind of hits all the different aspects of water, everything from, you know, cities and how cities are taking water um, to outdoor recreation and what that means for water to the, to agriculture. You know, that agriculture is a huge use of water in the West. We, you know, divert water out of these streams, irrigate uh, fields, and then the water goes back in talks about it from an ecological standpoint, particularly about fish. Um, but it's just, it's really fun. And she's a, she's very, she's very funny. And one of the things I thought was cool, unrelated to water in this book is she talks a lot about how a lot of these books that feature women adventurers are, you know, like one of the women, the, the, whoever the, the protagonist is, the woman who's going on this venture has had some, traumatic life experience. And she's kind of like, all right, screw it. I'm going to go on this crazy adventure. I'm going to hike the Appalachian trail or hike the Pacific crest trail, whatever. But in her mind, she says, I just want an adventure for the sake of adventure. I'm not running from anything. I'm not yeah. trying to uh, change my life. I just want to have a cool adventure and I'm going to do this. And so if, if anybody's interested in water and it is a endlessly fascinating subject, I mean, basically the whole West is a, is a big plumbing system. Like my city of Colorado Springs sits on the front range of, of, uh, Colorado sits on Colorado's front range on the East side. And we get 80% of our drinking water from the Colorado river basin, which is on the Western side of the continental divide there. So the water is being pumped underneath the mountains to this city of 500,000 people. And so, you know, everybody talks about Las Vegas and Los Angeles and how it depends on the Colorado river. Well, so does Colorado Springs. And, um, so it, if you want to really understand conservation, particularly in the West, you have to have some understanding of water. And if you want to learn about water without being bored, senseless, and actually being very highly entertained, that is the book. Man, that's good to know. I've had that one in my like on my Amazon book list for a while now, and I haven't committed to it yet. But it was it's been in there. It's been one of those like ah, I should probably. I should probably read that. I've, I've been recommended it a few times or I've seen it recommended a few times. So I thought, got to do it someday. And I think this is the push to finally hit by. Um, so I, I read another one this past summer. I can't remember what it's called. And I think it's on my bookshelf in Idaho. So I can't find it right now. But it's it's got this like orange and like orange and yellow and green, like topographic map kind of cover. It's written by a guy named Dave something. Yeah, Dave, yeah. Dave where Owens. The, where the water goes. That's like it. David. Is it Owen yeah. or Owens? Yeah. 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 Two, That's a like good that. one. That's yep. a good one too. Yep. I thought that one was pretty good. Um, but at times I wish the adventure was more of an adventure. Like I think that what you're describing with Heather's trip would have pulled me along and I would have had more fun with it. Um, so I think I, I want to dive in further and, and go on that journey too. Yeah, Heather's great, and 
I'm not trying to like shamelessly promote my podcast, but I've had her on twice, uh, once for this book and then once for a new book she wrote about ski towns and, yeah. and their impact on the West. And she, she's just super, super cool and, and obviously extremely talented writer. So, um, yeah, I, people ask me all the time about water and that's the one I tell them to, to read. Yeah, man, that's my favorite kind of book. And that's why I wrote the book I wrote and why I want to write more books like that. I think it's like a super like that kind of book in my, this is my opinion, just my opinion, but that is just such a great format. If you can take some, and maybe it's just cause this is what I like to read. So maybe I'm completely wrong, but I no, love, I'm with you. I completely agree. I love reading a book that takes you on an adventure. You're going to have fun. You're going to live vicariously through this person. And then along the way, they slip in all this fascinating information that you, you come out the other side, having learned a bunch too. I mean, that is just like, the ultimate combination for me. It's just such a, such a great kind of book to read. I, I could just, if what what's interesting is there's, there's so many topics where I find myself like in a bookstore or looking online thinking, God, I really wish there was a book that would take you like down this thing or to do this thing. And then I could learn about it. And I keep on finding that there's not books about those topics or in those places. And so I have this long running list of all these books now that I feel like I need to write because I want to read this book and I want to read this book and I want to read this one. No one's done it yet. So I feel like I guess I need to do that. So I have you this long list. I'm not joking. <laughs> you definitely need to do it. Um, but I, you mentioned American Buffalo. I think that's kind of the, a, a oh, yeah. great example of that. You know, this cool hunting adventure in a wild place. And then when you get done with it, you're like, wow, now I have all this, these facts and figures about Buffalo that I never knew before. I mean, I think it's for me, I think we're wired pretty similarly when it comes to our reading taste, but like there's nothing better than that. And so I think, and I think with anything, whether it's a business or a podcast or, or writing, like you want to be scratching your own itch, you know? And so like, if that's what you want to read, there's, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of other people out there who would want to read it as well. So yeah, as I've told you, you need to just keep writing. It's on, it's on the to-do list. <laughs> it's definitely on the to-do list. Um, okay, so I've got another recommendation that kind of falls in line with that in that it is, it's kind of one of these books where you, you go on a series of trips and you don't even realize that you're really learning a ton along the way. And this is like the most sneaky of those types of books. Um, it's called Encounters with the Arch or the Arch Druid. I don't know, is it Arch Druid or Arch Druid? Arch Druid. Arch Druid yeah. by John McPhee. Have you read this one? Ed? Yeah, I read it and it was like, it blew my mind. I read it. So I read it probably 12 years ago, something like that. Blew yeah. my mind. I was so glad to see that you were going to recommend yes, it. Yes. This book is phenomenal. Um, so John McPhee is one of our, he, he's an absolute icon of nonfiction writing in America. I mean, he's, he's pretty well recognized as one of the very, very, very best to have, to have ever done it. Um, he's a, frequent contributor to the New Yorker and written a ton of books and every one of them is just like beloved. Um, and he, he just has this wonderful way of examining seemingly very, very random topics and uh, making them interesting and making them uh, both worth reading and, and learning about. Um, I mean, he's written about oranges. He's written about shad. I think he's written about, uh, I mean, just bizarre things. But like just like one tennis match. Yeah. He wrote a whole book about a single tennis match. Yeah. And then you read it and you're like, wow, <laughs> it's incredible. So this book, though, is is this book he wrote that really does a, a interesting job of examining the conservation and environmental movement. And I think 
a series of philosophies, and he examines this larger topic by zooming in on one person and a series of experiences this person had, a very influential person in the 60s and 70s and, and really before that even. Um, and so this book, the author John McPhee goes on a series of trips with a guy named David Brower who was – who, who is, or sorry, was a very famous and influential environmentalist, conservationist. He headed up the Sierra Club at one point, uh, Friends of the Earth at one point, maybe Earth First. I, I'm going to, I should have had this written down, um, but was one of the main, main voices for a lot of these important environmental issues back in the 60s and 70s. He was one of those major faces of the movement back then, um, sometimes controversially. Um, he was, you know, he took things pretty far in some instances, but he did plenty of good. And um, this book follows John along with David Brower on three different experiences of sorts where he is paired up with someone who feels very differently about these things. And so what you end up getting is this very interesting examination of the push and pull between the conservation of natural resources and wild places versus the use of them. And so I think it's, I think it's a really helpful thing for anyone to do who cares about these things, who wants to be an advocate, because I think we need to understand and look at these things from all points of view. And I think you do yourself a disservice if you go into any kind of conservation issue and only look at it from your point of view. If I were to go and if I were to think about, okay, the boundary waters are an incredibly special place. I loved hunting there. I love canoeing there and damn it. I'm going to do anything to keep them as they are. Mm -hmm. I think that's a place. I think that's something a lot of us can relate to, but I think it is useful if we want to fight for those places to also be thinking about what are the folks that work at mines think about? What do the people who depend on those jobs think about? What's their point of view in this? You know, I think it's oftentimes better not to just demonize folks on the other side, but try to understand them because that might help us get to a, a better place. And this book, in a very sneaky way, does that. In, in no way in this book does John McPhee really take a stance on anything or advocate for anything or push anything on you. Instead, you are just like a fly on the wall as you follow this character, David Brower, on these trips with these kind of confrontational people or people that he has confrontations with of, of different sorts. Um, and they, they kind of go back and forth on all these different things. And somehow you come out the other side of this book, you know, really in a different place. So the first part of the book follows Brower on a trip into a newly designated wilderness area in Washington with a geologist and mining engineer. I think the guy's name was Charles Park or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so you, they're, they're on this trip. They're hiking and backpacking through this wilderness area while also you're, you're learning about Brower's history. You're learning about some of these early stories of the environmental movement. And then you're hearing Brower and then this mining engineer debating uh, whether or not there should be a new mine put into this wilderness area. There was there was a mine that was being proposed there. They were working on starting to survey it and do all this stuff. And so you're, you're kind of getting this back and forth push and pull between these two guys who have very different views on what should happen here. Um, and then also sometimes they have similar views on what should happen there. So again, you kind of go on this adventure with them 
while you get a two-sided conversation happening between two people um, on this just tough topic. And you never – McPhee is just a master at doing this in a way that you don't realize is happening. It, it's just like you're you're like a parrot on the shoulder on this adventure, and it all seems so natural through dialogue and back and forth between these guys. Um I wish I could somehow do what he does because really he does it better than anybody else. But the first part of the book is this this backpacking trip into the wilderness. The second part of the book follows Brower out to Hilton Head Island in South Carolina where he tours what's going on here in the island. This is back in, you know, I don't remember, 70s or 80s or something like that with a developer. And this developer is wanting to, you know um, – He's wanting to build. He's wanting to plan what's going to happen on this island and where can we build houses and where can we do things. And so it's it's this idea. Now we're exploring the push and pull between the conservation and preservation of places versus development. And is there a way to responsibly develop and plan development in ways that's better than others? And so you're, you're getting that push and pull here. So that the first one's between the push and pull of wilderness and resource extraction. The second part is the push for preservation and preservation versus development. And then the third book or sorry, the third part of the book follows Brower on a rafting trip down the grand Canyon with Floyd Dominey, who was the commissioner of the Bureau of reclamation, which as you know, and anyone who knows water is the government agency that manages our dams and water resources and things like that. So Dominey is, is kind of uh, he was viewed as a, as a villain of sorts back in the day because of his, um, you know, his, his part in damming the Colorado river, putting up the Glen Canyon dam and a series of others, um, that I even wrote about in my book, um, where, uh, basically, basically you've got the guy who represents the, oh, for better, for lack of a better term, like the rapacious use of water versus Brower's ideas of keeping these rivers running free and wild and Floyd Dominey is saying, no, we got to use these rivers. We need to we need to bridle them for human use and energy. And so you have this back and forth between those two while on this trip. So what's interesting in each one of these is that you have this confrontation, like one side versus the other, conservation versus use, preservation versus development, um, wilderness versus resource extraction. You've got these confrontations, but also... In each one of these situations, you also are getting to be this fly on the wall of these two people who seemingly, in each instance, seem to be so far on either side, actually realizing they have a lot in common along the way, too. Um, and coming out the other side, I think it, it's both inspiring, it's kind of informing of how we might be able to think about these things. You do learn some really interesting stuff about the history of some of the environmental and conservation movement back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, and you get to go on these very interesting adventures. You get to backpack into the wilderness of Washington. You get to float the Grand Canyon. Um, so it's it's a fun read in that regard. You learn some interesting things. You kind of have to mentally push through these like tensions that I think are still present today in different forms, but the same push and pull between those two different things are still going today. And, uh, it, it's like a short, quick book that actually covers a massive, massively important topic. Um, so that's a long winded rambling way of saying you got to read this one. No, that's, I, I agree with all that. And I think it's, um, 
I think that book in some ways, I hadn't really thought about it until just now, but it's, it, it could be seen as more important now than ever because people just seem to be so divided across no matter what the issue is. Um, it's people are just kind of hold up in their camp and they're not interested in, in listening to the other side. And I mean, you think about, it, it's probably hard to really understand, but how polar opposite Brower is from these three guys that he goes on trips with. I mean, it's, it's the equivalent of like, if you took somebody from that, <laughs> that organization called Sea Shepherd that smashes into, uh, yeah. You know, smashes into whaling boats and, and made them go on a camping trip with the CEO of a whaling, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a whaling for sure. company. And, but, but I mean, I think it speaks to the importance of conversation, the importance of curiosity and the importance of tr- really trying to understand what, you know, quote, the other side is thinking. And I'm a, I think you are too, a big fan of, uh, Adam Grant, yeah. the, the professor. And, and I read it recently, read his book, think again. And Great he's always, book. he talks about how, if you approach things that maybe you don't agree with, with, with curiosity, instead of just like bolstering your opinion and refusing to budge, but really trying to understand what the other side's, where the other side's coming from, you, you know, I think best case, you might learn something and maybe adjust your views a little bit. Worst case, you, you, you keep your same views and you, 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 you're more confident in what you already think. And I, I feel like this is a perfect example. I mean, you think if you, no matter what the issue is, if you took somebody on the other side and you had to go on a three day backpacking trip with them, like you probably end up realizing that you have a lot more in common than you don't. And so, um, I think, uh, I remember when I I just stumbled across that book in the bookstore long time ago and read it and I was like, this sounds like one of the coolest things I've, I've ever seen. And it is, I mean, I, I think about it often. So I think that's a great recommendation. Yeah. It's one that you I feel like you don't, hear about a whole lot anymore mm. it's it's not one that gets brought really up don't. um but i think it i think it deserves to be it really it's this slim little book that i feel it, it really encapsulates a whole lot more than i think maybe it's given credit for so it's uh it's worth reading i agree completely all right my turn yeah what do you got all right so this may not come off as conservation at first, but for me personally, it was, it was really created a foundational shift in the way I think about things. And I think it connects in well with your American Serengeti recommendation, as it seems like almost all these books do, <laughs> but, uh, it's called for the love of land, hmm. global case studies of grazing in nature's image by Jim Howell. And on the surface and by the title and subtitle, it appears to be just a book about ranching. And so you may be thinking, well, I don't, I don't care about ranching or I don't want to know anything about ranching. But what this book does is it basically lays out the importance of grazing for grasslands and for grassland health and the need for grazing and how grazing can be used to make grasslands more healthy. And so, you know, like I said, I used to be in the, the ranch brokerage business and now a lot of my conservation work is working with ranchers to to help them conserve their property. And when you're out here in the West, you know, you're up there in the big mountains and pretty much anytime you look down in a valley, that, that is for the most part is private land. Um, and a lot, you know, the vast majority of it that's still intact is being used, um, as, as grazing land and grasslands throughout the entire world are one of the biggest, um, ways to sequester carbon. Um, you know, it's right there, right up there. It might even be more, I should know this, but then the, then the rainforest as far as sucking in carbon and and helping to keep the, you know, keep carbon levels at, at their normal rates. And so 
basically what Jim does, this book is is split up into two ver two two halves. The first half is kind of like a natural history of of North America combined with um talking about the the history of grasses and the the natural history of grasses. The second half is is really case studies about how he's implemented this this work that he does. But basically he lays out how grass grasses and ruminants evolve together and one cannot exist without the other. And so as grasses grow, they need to be grazed and then they need to have herds of large animals that have hooves come over and disturb the grasslands, pee and poop on it, tear it up, eat it down, eat the grass down and then move on to another area. And by doing that, the grasses thrive and that's what they, that's what they evolved to do. And and so you can, you know, on private land, you can actually mimic that with certain grazing techniques. But one of the things that stuck with me about it is how a lot of nowadays, I think there's some movement, <laughs> or I guess there has been for quite a while, that that cattle are bad and that grazing is bad and we need fake meat. We don't need regular meat anymore. Um, and what he lays out here very clearly is how grassland health is directly related to how it is grazed. And he does all these case studies. Like he goes down the Southwest, I think it may be near Canyonlands National Park. And he shows this photo and there's a fence line. And on one side is the national park where no grazing is allowed. And this is a very arid environment. And on the other side is a private ranch where grazing is allowed. And on the no grazing side, it looks like a desert. It looks like the, the typical desert that you think of when you think of that. And then on the grazing private land side is this lush grass that has been um, this healthy, that prevents erosion, um, keeps moisture on the ground, the little moisture that there is. And that is because that that side where the grazing has happened has been grazed very intentionally over a, a very long period of time, whereas the other, the grass has just died. And this, this book, it really helped me, it really kind of nailed home this idea that Livestock can be, if used properly, it it is great for the land. And you know, you know, for better or worse, or maybe neither. It's just how it is. We are never going back to the days of wide open spaces out here. You know, there's private property, there's fences, and so in order to keep the grasses as um, healthy as they can be, the really the only way to do it is to use livestock. And so this book lays out specific techniques, but, and, and so you can go as, as in depth as you want to the, the techniques of how this happens. And he lays out case studies everywhere from ranches in Colorado to sub-Saharan Africa. But I think what really stuck with me is just how hooved animals that eat grass are linked to grasslands forever. And we need to have the two together. And Jim's actually been on my podcast several times talking about all this stuff, as has his wife, whose name is Daniela Howell, who's the CEO of uh, the Savory Institute, which um, really implements a lot of this holistic range management uh, work. But I think as, you know, as we talk about public and private lands and grazing on, on both, this is a great book to kind of get you up to speed on that topic. And it was, it was very formative to me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't have a, like a direct touch point to grazing. Like, I don't have, um, obviously experience with that, but when I worked on the back 40 project, I, I dove deep into a lot of ideas around regenerative agriculture. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and the ways that can be implemented, you know, on a smaller scale with food plots and growing crops and things for wildlife. Right. And that's like very, very adjacent or, you know, 
basically it's it's part of you know the regenerative agriculture ideas with grasslands and grazing and all that kind of stuff. So I, I ended up learning a lot about that and was really fascinated by it. There's a lot to it and, and understanding, you know, better, more natural ways to manage grasslands or grow either growing grass or crops. I mean, finding natural ways to mimic nature, finding ways to work with nature versus fighting it. Um, so often leads to better outcomes for everything, um, whether it be the health of grass or the production or, um, you know, what, what you can actually get off the, get off of a 10 acre plot of corn. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, highly recommend diving into that topic in general, because there's a lot of stuff there that that is actually relevant even to whitetail hunters that manage land too. So interesting stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. And and this, this book, I, I believe he's got, tons of, uh, you know, further reading and that kind of thing. And you can go deep down like the Alan Savory holistic management. I mean, there's just unbelievable amounts of information about there, but out there about this topic. But for me, particularly the first half of that book was very eye opening to, to the whole concept of regenerative agriculture. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Okay, next one for me. I'm, I'm going to go to, well, 
I guess if I first started by saying let's look back, which was the American Serengeti, and then I moved us forward a little bit to like the awakening of an, of an ecological consciousness with the Sand County Almanac. Then with uh, McPhee, we kind of then moved into the 60s and the 70s and understanding the, the push and pull between conservation or preservation versus use um, and development and extraction. Um, now I want to look into the future with a book called The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. And this book and a series of other kind of related books that I'll mention too um, talk about this this crisis of sorts that's been going on slightly under the radar um, that's 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 becoming more and more um, obvious I think and that is this this serious biodiversity crash across the world even here in America um, basically this book the sixth extinction examines five major mass extinction events that have occurred on earth up to now there have been five big moments in history where uh, there's been dramatic crashes in animal populations across the world. And now there has been a sixth. We're in the beginning of a sixth mass extinction event over the last, you know, decades. Um, there have been a disproportionately high number of animal species disappearing off the face of the earth faster than ever before in the millions of years, other than these five other events. And so what the author does in this book is takes the first part of the book and examines the history of these past events and how scientists discovered them and, and what we can learn from them. Stuff like the dinosaurs, stuff like, um, you know, the Pleistocene animals, mammoths, that kind of stuff. Um, so we, we get some very interesting, like big history. But then the next part of the book, she then explores like what's happening now. How are we losing these animals? Why are we losing these animals? What's being done about it? Um, what's going on here? So she travels to the rainforest in South America and coral reefs and uh, different places all over the world and, and examines and explores this issue um, in a way that I think is pretty, pretty illuminating and, and important. I think this is like one of those big, big things like you, you hear a lot about. And for better or worse, like the, it's become politicized, global mm -hmm. global warming, climate change, whatever you want to say about that. It's unfortunately become a polarizing issue. But but this whole other and related crisis of, of biodiversity and extinctions across the world, this is something that's, that's just as important and, and tied very much along with that. And um, this book is is probably the best one I've found that, that dives into this. Um and I think it's something that as somebody who hunts and fishes, if you care about animals uh, and you care about fish and you care about wild places, this whole disappearance of, of animals across the country and the world is, is, has got to be concerning. And there's so many animals that, you know, you learn about and you hear about um, that might not be here five from years from now or 20 years from now or 10 years from now. And that's uh, having kids now, for some reason, that just seems like, so much more tragic when I think about the fact that there's, you know, a hundred of these leopards left, or there's 50 of these, or there's 700 of these and thinking like, gosh, my kids won't even know about this someday. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's, I don't know. It, it seems, uh, it's, it seems morally I don't even know what the right word is. I, I I don't know. It just seems really damn wrong. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I wish, and I hope, and I, and I 
And I uh, aspire to hopefully someday be able to see that change in some kind of way. I don't know if it will, but uh, but I guess reading about it, learning about it is is a step one. So this book does a, a pretty good job of doing that. I will say it's it's a little bit, I don't want to say it's dense, dense, um, but it is denser than some of the others. Um, and it's not all focused on like big charismatic animals. So I think yeah. it's, I think it's easy to like dive into this topic and read about like a Sumatran rhinoceros and how that's disappearing and like care about that. It's a little bit harder when you're learning about a little frog or something, which she talks about too. Um, but, but I would encourage folks to, to give it a shot. I listened to a lot of this one. This was a good book to listen to. Um, I got through a lot of it through that Avenue. I'd recommend that if, if this sounds like a book, that maybe you're intimidated by because of what I'm saying here. Um, maybe try listening to it. Um, there's another couple books along these lines, one called half earth by EO Wilson, another one called rescuing the planet by Tony Hiss, which also talk about this uh, issue and, um, some proposed ideas about conserving larger swaths of the remaining natural landscapes we have across the world to try to stem the bleeding of sorts. Those two are more recent books that I think, cover this one too in interesting ways that that if you're interested in this kind of stuff might be worth checking out um but yeah i think that i I think that this is one of those topics that we all have got to be aware of and thinking about and this is a good entryway into that one so that's that's why i recommend the sixth extinction because i think this is going to be one of those big issues that we're talking about and trying to tackle for the decades to come so uh that's that's one that i thought would be worth mentioning have you read this one ed no, I haven't read any of those that you um, that you just recommended, and they they all sound great. And I was just I was thinking it's it's a shame that I think I would guess that a lot of people when they hear like a topic like that, they think it, it, because it's been politicized, people are like, oh, that's that's left wing stuff or whatever. And and I'm not I, I'm, I feel like I'm right in the middle, and I try not to <laughs> I don't want to associate with too much with any one yeah. <laughs> one group in right any part of you. my life. And, uh, and, and I feel like this is one of those books. I mean, that, that was one of the reasons, like when I started my podcast, I lived in Boulder, Colorado, which is as, about as far left as you can get. And I would live next door to some of the, you know, the most, you could even call militant environmentalists. But then in my work, I was out working with ranchers right. who were on the far other end of the spectrum. Um, yet there was this massive overlap between the, the far left environmentalist and the far right ranching conservationists. And they had so much more in common than they did different. And so I feel like this is one of those books that whether, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, I think it's worth reading because at the end of the day, it's, I think we all want a planet we can live on, you know, we want clean air, we want a- animals. And I don't, I don't know that there's, I think if any, any kind of politics that's been attached to that is serving somebody else. <laughs> yeah. But I, I really do think it's, it's a, it's a topic that I have not read enough about and I need to dig deeper into. So I, I remember when you, you were uh, recommending this book initially and I wrote it down. So this, this is what I need to, to push it up top on the top of the list. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, it also won the Pulitzer prize. So it's, Did it really? it's, uh, it's been well, uh, well awarded. <laughs> oh, sweet. Yeah, yeah. I'll check, I'll definitely check that out. Um all right, my turn last one. Yep. So my last one is called All the Wild That Remains, um which is by a guy named David Gessner. All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner in the American West. 
And it's by one of my favorite writers, um, David Gessner, who is actually a, he's a writing professor in North Carolina at University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And he actually has been the professor of some of my good friends who are really talented writers. But it is, uh, you know, it's the the story of, as, as the title says, Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner, who, if you're not from the West, you, you may not have or deeply involved in the West in one way or another, you may not have heard of them, but they're, they're kind of two different figures. Both were writers and both kind of came up through the, you know, the, the, the 20th century and really set the stage for both the, the, the modern day environmental movement, as well as just similar to how with Leopold and his book, they, 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 they put language in place that we use to talk about wild places and about the West and about conservation. And, you know, this is more focused on the West, but I, I think that it, it can, it has application across the whole country because Definitely. these guys were just so, so pivotal in their roles. Um, on the surface, you know, Stegner, uh, he, he grew up kind of going through the West. His, his father was kind of the stereotypical, Western boomer, you know, kind of going town to town, trying to strike it rich, trying to make as much money as he can, booms and bust. And then the, the guy, I think he eventually just kind of flamed out and uh, like a horrible thing where he he had a girlfriend, he killed his girlfriend and then committed suicide. And so just this, it, Wallace Stegner just had this really tumultuous childhood and young adulthood. And so Wallace Stegner as a grown up was really the opposite. He was a buttoned up college professor. He taught at Stanford very, you know, on the surface conservative, um, and thought, you know, he was a very talented writer. He wrote, you know, beyond the hundredth meridian, which is a mandatory reading about the West and then, yeah. and it's nonfiction. And then he also wrote like angle of repose, which is one of the best novels ever written. And, uh, you know, that felt a deep connection to, to this place that is the West and, sought to change it kind of from within. And so a lot of his primetime work was during the 60s and 70s when there was also this counterculture movement and, you know, hippies and all this kind of stuff. And he really, in some ways, kind of railed against that type. And so then on the opposite end of the spectrum is Edward Abbey, who was a wild man. And he was, you know, advocate, he wrote uh, Desert Solitaire, The Monkey Wrench Gang, kind of advocated for this complete other side of things, like even kind of like eco-terrorism, like let's, let's blow up the Hoover Dam, that kind of crazy stuff. And, and so both of these guys, he was actually a student of Wallace Stegner's for a while in the writing program. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And so these guys went off um, and, and both made their mark on the West in, in very different ways. And so this book, it's it's a lot of different things. It's kind of a double biography, but it's not it's not completely. And, and I, I've always liked books where it, I like double biographies, like, for example, The Bully Pulpit, that's um, Theodore Roosevelt and President Taft. And I think when you can play people off of each other, it allows you to to kind of dig into parts of their personality you wouldn't be able to otherwise. But um but Gessner also works in a lot of his own personal story into it, and it, he works in a big road trip across the West. And it's one of these things, like we were talking about with your book and with Steve's book, of of um, an adventure uh, adventure story is kind of the backbone of the book, and then you learn stuff along the way. And um, and so it, you know, Gessner is very, very, very funny. At least I I think he is, and you, you get a lot of his personality, and you get a lot of his ideas about everything from writing to the importance of hard work to the importance of having adventures, and being you know kind of seeking out wild places and and 
connecting with our innate wildness. And, um, you know, Gessner is more on the progressive side of things with his political beliefs, but, um, I know him very well. He's been on my podcast, I think at least three times. And, uh, you know, he is a very thoughtful, very smart, very funny guy. And so I think no matter what your political persuasion or thoughts, if you want to have a good understanding of the modern day West and the modern day conservation movement, whether that means the, the far left environmentalist type stuff or conservation as in conserving ranches, conserving farms. I think this book really lays a great foundation for that. So highly rec- I recommend all of Gessner's book. He wrote a pretty good one. Um, I mean, a really good one recently about uh, Theodore Roosevelt yeah. called leave it as it is that I thought was great. I mean, he's, he is hilarious too. So, um, have you read all the while that remains? Oh yeah. I, I was actually going to include it on my list until I saw that you included it. So <laughs> I stuck it in. You did I, a big, big fan of this one. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more and I would, I would just emphasize something you said, but I want to make a really big point on this is that while these two guys are known as Western writers and primarily discussing some Western related issues, this is not just about Western conservation or anything like that it really like these guys, while, while the West was their main canvas that they painted their stories and ideas on the concepts, the philosophies, the ideas about protecting places, conserving places, caring about these things, it applies across everything. And, and what they wrote and the ideas that they popularized are still pulled upon and inspire people trying to conserve across the entire nation, whether it's in Maine or Florida or Montana. Um, so I think this, this book is kind of, um, you know, more than just the, the things you described that being like the dual biography, it's also this kind of examination of, of this history, but then also kind of current, um, current environment we're in and trying to make sense of how we can fight this fight while also being real people and the realities of the world and the, the everything that that involves um, understanding those two people, I think is, is pretty important in understanding how we as a, as a community think about these things today. And they did such a good job of putting words to so many things we think and feel today. Um, and I mean, I love both their writing, but Ed Abbey, Ed Abbey especially is just like such a firebrand. Mm-hmm. And even though he of he of course, you know, in my opinion, went too far, or at least, you know, he, he espouses things that would be far too far for me. Right. Some of the stuff you talked about, which is, uh, I think, uh, you know, obviously you would not condone any form of violence. Right. Yep. Um, but outside of some of that stuff he talked about, um, I do love how he is able to express how pissed off he was about things and how pissed off I can be about things and the the pain and the fury that I think we rightfully should feel sometimes about the, the I don't know who, who to blame because it's just as much me as anyone, right? But the the collective shit we've taken on the natural world in so many instances across our nation's history and continue to do so that is, you know, it's on each one of us in, in one way or another. Um, so I'm a part of that, unfortunately too, but I think, um, he, he does a great way of putting words and emotions to this, uh, collective trauma we can experience in different ways when we look at 
a place that we love being paved over with a Walmart parking lot, or when we see a river that we loved rafting being dammed up and, you know, civilized or whatever it might be. Um, he's one of the few people that has been able to just with no filter express those things in a way that I think hits a lot of people. So this is a great introduction to him. And if you enjoy reading about him and the ideas in this book, um, then you got to read desert solitaire, which is at Abby's book. One of, one of his many books. Um, and, and I enjoyed that one too. Well, and I think, you know, you, I think Gessner also does a really good job of laying out that, uh, like every human on earth, uh, Ed Abbey was, is, can be a bit of a hypocrite. You know, oh, yeah. he was, uh, you know, he's advocating for you know, basically blowing up bulldozers to keep them off of a, a piece of land. But at the same time, he was known for drinking beer while he's driving and throwing the cans out the window and just littering, you right. know? And, and so I think some of these guys, TR especially, but a lot of these people can be put on this pedestal as if they're otherworldly or they're not human or they, and, but they're all flawed. Every single one of these people is flawed. And I think, um, Gessner does a great job of showing just how complex both Stegner and Abby are. And if anything, you can take that and be like, all right, well, yeah, I'm like, I sit here saying there's not enough water in the West yet. I moved here from North Carolina. So I'm a hypocrite. That doesn't mean I, I can't try to help something or try to do something about it. So yeah. I, um, yeah, I lo- that's one of my favorite books, I think. Yep. Yep. I agree. Me too. Uh, great, great book. Kudos, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> well done, sir. Too. <laughs> well done. Uh, okay. So that's a really good segue into my last recommendation because a few of the Ed Abbey type themes pop up in this one. Have you read the overstory by Richard Powers? No, but like every good writer I know, says it's like one of the best books I've ever read in their whole life. And so I, I don't know why I haven't read it, but Gessner actually said he, he said he, he could not believe how great a, bo- a book it was like, just as if it's from another planet. Yeah. And so, um, I've heard it from many, many people. I need to, it's on my shelf. I have not read it. Tell me about it. Yeah, man. That's, that's exactly how I feel about it. And I, I literally, after finishing reading the book, I like dropped it on my lap and then just stood staring blankly at the wall for for 10 minutes, just kind of overwhelmed by it. And I have actually thought, my, my wife's reading it right now, but when she gets done, I'm going to put this, I'm going like to mount it to my wall or put it on my desk some way. I have no other books like right prominently in front of me, but I'm going to put it there somewhere to showcase the power of a story. It's, it's, it's really something. Um, I recommended this book to my buddy, Doug Duran. Anyone listening to this knows Doug Duran Hunter. He's been featured on Mediator. He's been on the podcast and he's starting to read this book right now. And he just texted me today and I want to read you his endorsement, um, as an intro to this. He says the overstory is remarkable. I've been too busy to devour it and slow reading has allowed me to marvel at the writing, relate to the characters and wonder what's next. I've always marveled at trees and felt connected to them, but this book has given words to those feelings. So here's what this book's about, Ed. Well, it's hard to tell you exactly what this book's about, but the, the overstory is, it's a story. It's, it's kind of a a massive parable. It's, it's a fictional book. First off, 
So this is not a nonfiction like history book or anything. This is a fictional book about. Do you a, read much fiction in general? I don't. I don't Maybe. read a lot of fiction at all. So that's why I, I I'd heard the same. I heard the same things you heard. That, like you got to read this book. It's incredible. But I kept thinking to myself, man, I don't know. I don't really like fiction. Um, I do read you know the occasional fiction thing. But if I am going to read fiction, it's usually like action or fantasy or sci-fi or something like that. I don't read general literary fiction. Um, so I just had that um, resistance, I guess, to it. But finally, I picked it up. And at first, you might be wondering, like, what is this book about once you start? Because each chapter, the first, like, eight chapters are seemingly disconnected. They almost don't have anything to do with each other. You're just learning about, like, it's a a short story. Each chapter is seemingly a short story about some new character. And you get pulled into each one. It's like amazingly interesting and fascinating and absolutely beautifully written. And each one has something to do with trees and, and the natural world, but in different ways. But each of these different people has some kind of experience or connection with, with trees, the forest, plants. Um, but seemingly none of it's connected. But then as the book progresses, each of these different disparate characters is pulled together in this huge overarching story. Where in one way or another, each one of these different people has an awakening to the natural world in some kind of way or some kind of uh, new awareness to our connection with trees and forests and plants and and nature in general. And and they, they kind of have this huge long character arc where eventually these people all kind of come together in this kind of epic story. That I, I I don't I'm not going to tell you the specifics of all what happens, but you, you just have to trust me in this that you learn a tremendous amount about trees and forests. Like like forests and trees are the are the central theme. Like all the book revolves around trees, and yeah. and you end up coming out of this book with this newfound wonder with these organisms and these ecosystems um, and the power they have and our connection with them and, and the connection we've had with them in the history of our country. Um, but, but more than just that, it's um, it showcases like the power of fiction to convey emotion because it's, mm-hmm. it's just a story. It's not like, you know, Richard Powers could have beat you over the head with a thousand facts and historical tidbits and studies about trees. And instead he poured all of this knowledge and studies and research and interesting science about trees and forests and history. And he poured that into and layered that onto a set of stories with characters and people going through real life stuff, having real life things happen in a way that you care about these people and this stuff so much more than if you were reading a science book. Um, and it ends up being incredibly emotional, incredibly inspiring, incredibly empowering, incredibly sad and uplifting. And, um, uh, I mean, I'm kind of at a loss of words, how to really describe this, but if you are anyone who cares about this stuff we've been talking about in this podcast so far, this story will connect with you, I think, in a really, really powerful way. It is a jaw dropper in a lot of ways. Um, you, you go on these journeys with these people that um, 
I don't know. I, I came out of reading this book just like fired up to do more, to try to, you know, even though the, the general theme of this book is around trees and the forests, I think it, it speaks to everything. It speaks to the general sense of, or the general issues we have around everything we've talked about, wildlife, water, um, habitat protection, conservation of natural resources, deer, birds, grasslands, forests, deserts, whatever. This book is really about awakening to a, a, a consciousness of some kind of connection with these things and then trying to do something about it, realizing these things are out here and they matter and that they matter to us. And then realizing, holy shit, what are we going to do to make sure this stuff's still around someday? And you go on this journey with like six or seven different people and it's just shocking. It's just, it's, it's, I don't know. This book just serves as like the shocking power to me that words can have and that stories can have. Um, so I can't recommend it enough. You know, it's, it's a book to savor. It's not a book to try to like rush through. I don't think. Um, although once you get to like the second half of the book, it does really, really pull you along. Um, but it's, it's something else, man. It really is something else. I have to, I will say like the one thing is like, I'm sure there'll be some people that will read this and they will see a couple things that happen. A couple of like the more extreme, um, like there's an act of eco-terrorism in the book that some of the characters do. And so I obviously won't, I do not condone that, of course. Um, so there'll be some people that will read this and be like, oh, Jesus is some leftist, crazy, wacko, radical, environmentalist terrorists. Um, and, and I don't want that to get in the way of the rest of the book. I think the sentiments and the emotions and the cares and the worries expressed in this book and that you follow on this journey with these people about, I think it's pretty universal and pretty powerful and, um, and man, I'll never question fiction again after reading this one, because I think you can teach and inspire just as much with something like this as you can with any of the other nonfiction books we've talked about. So, uh, yeah, the overstory by Richard powers. Yeah. I've, I've heard such great things about that by, from just in general, just the buzz, but then from people that I really, really respect. Um, and so that I, I just need to make that one happen. And I, I'm like you, I just, I don't read much fiction at all. I mean, and, and I never have. And I, I used to kind of take weirdly, like take pride in that, like, ah, oh, I don't, I don't read fiction, but yeah. thankfully through my podcast and, uh, and then through, um, just forcing myself outside of my comfort zone, I've, I've really have started, started reading more fiction. And like, there's an author named uh, Nicholas Butler that I had on the podcast and I was just yeah. recently introduced to his work. And when, you know, there's a certain type of novelist who can, like you said, communicate these larger truths in a way that you could never get from the facts and figures of nonfiction, no matter how much you read, they, they can just tap into this. I don't know if you call it an emotional side of things or, or it's just that they get these big themes that we can all connect with through into our brains, through these fictional stories. And when it's done when it's done well or done spectacularly, like it sounds like the overstory, there's nothing more powerful. And so, um, I, I'm glad to hear you say that cause I've, I've got it on my shelf. I bought it as soon as I think as soon as Gessner said, was talking about it being like the great American novel or something. And, um, but it's just been sitting there. So I will get to work. Yep. No more letting that sit in the shelf. All right. And, uh, <laughs> this one won the Pulitzer prize too. So, 
it's uh you got you got a, a highbrow taste in books <laughs> i guess <products>. so <laughs> <laughs> those might be the only two pulitzer winners on my bookshelf but they are good ones um, the rise of theodore roosevelt won the pulitzer and that's my favorite book mm, so i'm, there you I'm go. with you on pulitzers you're there with me uh so yeah man there's there's 10 books plus a few i think extra suggestions in there for anyone uh who wants to really dig into this stuff? I think it's a pretty diverse list. There's a lot of different stuff covered there. Yeah. And there's a lot of different ways you can take it. You know, you read one of those books and then you're going to have a list of 20 other books you want to read. So, um, there's a, there's a lot there and I, I can't wait to dig into those two that I had not read from your list. So I, I appreciate this. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I'm, uh, I'm going to pick up uh, down river here right when we get off the phone. Um, I want to real quick throw out a couple other, resource suggestions for people. If, if there are folks now, I don't think anyone who's listened this far doesn't like to read. Cause if you've listened to almost two hours of us talking about <laughs> books, you must like books. But I guess if for some reason you don't like books and you've still listened to all of this, I wanted to give a couple non book suggestions to people. Probably should have done this at the beginning, uh, but <laughs> better late than never. Um, I don't know if you had any, any ideas like this, Ed, but I had a couple things I was going to throw out there. Um, a favorite documentary of mine related to some of these topics is Public Trust, which yeah. is a tremendous documentary about the fight for public lands. Talks about a lot of the same things I talked about in my book, but does it in a really powerful way that you know film can do with our you know shared friend Hale Herring. Mm-hmm. Um, great, great. Another thing I would suggest to folks, if they want to learn more about conservation, if they want to learn more about what's going on day to day, there are a number of good newsletters out there that come out weekly or even daily, keeping you up to speed on stuff going on. So a few that I subscribe to, I'll just mention the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. It's got a really good weekly newsletter, which keeps you up to speed on, you know, these aren't just articles from them. They post articles from all sorts of different people talking about relevant issues in the hunting and fishing and conservation space. The Center for Western Priorities sends out a daily newsletter that's mostly Western conservation issue focused, but touches on a whole lot of different things related to environmental and conservation causes every day with a big list of links to go check out. So that's a good way just to keep your finger on the pulse of different things going on across the country. Um, for the deer hunters out there, the National Deer Association got a newsletter where they're posting a number of different updates. BHA has another one, same thing. Lots of good updates there. And then finally, I will tell you that the Mountain and Prairie podcast by you, sir, Ed Robertson, <laughs> is a great, great podcast to listen to if you care about these issues, too, because you've had a number of people that either write about these things or engage with these things on a day-to-day basis and a number of different careers um, who care about conservation and, and live it day-to-day. And I've been inspired by a lot of those conversations you have. So highly suggest, folks, if you're listening, tune into Ed's show. Um, if you care about wild places, wild animals, the West, any of that stuff, you're going to find something there on the mountain prairie podcast. So, uh, those are my suggestions, Ed, do you have anything else you'd add? Um, yeah, I'd say for a documentary, there's a really good one, uh, called, uh, first of all, public trust. I, I highly recommend that. Awesome. It's uh how hearing he's a, he's a hero of mine. He's, he, and he's a big fan of you and your book, by the way, as you know. Um, but there's a really good one. It's more specific, but it's, um, called into the Canyon by it's a filmmaker named Pete McBride yeah. and he, Pete and his buddy, Kevin Fedarko, who's an author who wrote, um, the Emerald mile, which is a really awesome book Great about book. the Grand Canyon. They hike the length of the canyon inside it. So it's like 800 miles, no trail, 
very few people have done it. And so they, they hike from one end of the canyon to the other and film it. And then along the way, um, talk about a lot of the different threats that are facing the canyon and the history of the canyon. And so again, it's like we, it's the, the film version of what we've been talking about with these books, this adventure story where they work in a bunch of really interesting things. And even about the, you know, the Navajo and the tribal lands and some threats to their way of life. Um, Pete, and there's a, there's a companion coffee table book that goes with it that shows some of the, um, the, the work, uh, some of the, the photos from that expedition, but really, really awesome. Um, if you're into private lands, particularly ranching um, and ranching's impact on uh, on conservation, there's a really good group called the Western Landowners Association, and they put out what I think is one of the best emails uh, around. I think once a month they put it out, and it's just filled with resources about everything from conservation to land management, land stewardship. Very, very focused on the, the private land side of things, but it's inspiring to see all the work that's going into things on the private land side. I actually, it's embarrassing. I was this late doing it, but I went on my first elk hunt in January and it was a life changing experience. And so yes. I'm now a member of backcountry hunters and anglers and will be forever. And, uh, and so I'm just getting really dialed into all the resources they have, but I've got a few of their magazines and I've, I've been getting their, their emails and, um, huge fan of everything they're doing and, yeah. and can't wait to immerse myself in that world even more. But those are, those are kind of my top ones right now. That's great. Are you going to go up to the BHA rendezvous? I I would love to. I'm trying to figure out if it works with the schedule. I, I really, really want to though. I've wanted to for quite a while. You should and, think about uh, it. I think it'd be, I think you would, especially now that you've, you've uh, dipped your toes into those waters yourself and, and uh, experienced that big game hunt. I think you would get a kick out of, getting to engage more of the folks there at that uh, event. Awesome event full of people fired up about these things we're talking about. And uh, interestingly, I haven't mentioned this on the podcast yet, but I will be one of the featured speakers at the big storytelling night at the national convention. So oh, uh, sweet. I'll be there too. We're cooking elk upstairs in the crock pot as we record this. Oh. And so I've been I'm smelling the elk. Um, really, man. I mean, obviously I sound like a dumbass on your podcast talking about this, but like, life change. I, I would, wouldn't think at age 44, I would have thought you kind of maxed out a lot of your, you know, peak life experiences, but that elk hunt with Adam Gall of Timber to Table Guide Service was unbelievable. We could, I'll, I'll give you the full download on that sometime. Unbelievable. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely want to talk to you more about that. If I, if I didn't have to pee so bad, my eyeballs are about to float <laughs> out of my head. I'm glad it's not just me. Yeah, <laughs> I would say we should talk about it now, but but we're both old men now, so we we don't have that long on the phone these days. <laughs> and this has been a lot of fun. I uh, I really do appreciate you sharing this stuff. You're you're always a great resource when it comes to you know both talking about these ideas yourself or you know recommending books and people to dive into further. So uh, I knew this would be fun, and it was. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate you writing your book. I appreciate all the hard work you put into everything you put out in the world. It's it's making the world a better place. I really, really do appreciate it. I thank you. Thank you for saying that. Where where can folks go if they want to hear your podcast or get signed up for your book recommendations or, or anything else you're doing? Where can they find all that? Yeah, easiest spot, mountainandprairie.com. Just go to that. You can. I've got a uh, uh, every other month. I send out book recommendations, six emails a year, 
no ads, no spam, nothing, just five or six books I've read and, and recent and read recently and highly recommend. And I've got a weekly email called good news from the American West where only good news, no negative stuff. I like it. And then, uh, you know, I'm on all the social media stuff. So I'd love to love to connect with anybody. Awesome. Well, Ed, let's do it again soon. I really enjoyed yeah, this. Thank you. And that is a wrap. Thanks for tuning into this one. Hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate you coming along with this journey over the course of Conservation Month. I don't know about you, but I am feeling re-energized and excited to get out there, to get my hands dirty, whether that be planting a tree or dialing a phone number or reading a book, whatever it is. Um, you know, I know we got a lot of work to do to get ready for whitetail season coming up in not that many more months. It's kind of crazy how quickly it's coming up on us. But at the same time, There's a lot of stuff we can do right now to make sure that our future deer hunting seasons are bright as well. So I hope you'll join me in that too. So until next time, my friends, I appreciate you and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.